Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Roy Oshiro. Roy has worked in the software industry for over 20 years and has authored several books, including The Art of Unit Testing. These days, he is working as a freelance consultant and trainer on site for various companies across the world. Welcome, Roy. Hey, uh, good to be here. And hello, everybody. Kind of excited, actually. Yeah. So before we jump into the meat, would you give our listeners maybe a little introduction to yourself? You know, perhaps tell them how you got started in the industry. Yeah, sure. Well, it was a windy and stormy day. Well, I've been a software developer for over 20 years. Um, I've done most of the different chores and tasks and roles uh, from uh, developer, senior developer, CTO, VP, um, architect, uh, project manager, tech lead, QA. I got to do a lot of stuff, uh, especially when you work in different startups, you get to wear many hats. So um, the way I like to explain it is that I've done so many mistakes, I can now teach people how to avoid them. That's basically the idea. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've, I've done a lot of different things for very small and very large companies. And in the past, let's say, 10 or 15 years, I've been working on and off as a uh, consultant for a few years and then as a hired person for a few years. So I kind of switch between these two roles. I jump into a role for a few years. I learn a lot. And then I jump out and I basically do consulting on the stuff that I've learned. Then I jump back in and then I jump back out. So in the past few years, I've been just kind of navigating between a lot of large organizations. It's been a crazy ride. So interesting. And um, so many different problems that arise when the size of the organization becomes larger. So to me, that's a fascinating subject. We'll probably get into at some point. Okay. And so then um, what is what is a day to day for you uh, sort of look like today these days? Well, um, I don't know about you, but I'm working from home and I'm working a lot with Zoom and uh, Microsoft Teams and thankfully not so much with Skype. And uh, <laughs> the way that I do it is that I you, right now, since I'm consulting, I have a couple of customers usually that I work with. So I switch my time uh, usually two or three days a week with one customer and another couple of days with another customer. Sometimes I'll have trainings and I also do the training online. So I'll teach test-driven mm-hmm. development or elastic leadership or um, uh, the co-ops and pipeline-driven organization stuff. And I teach the whole stuff online because of COVID. But I used to. And I remember that I used to fly to different places. That was quite an experience. I kind of miss standing in line a little bit. But... Uh, yeah, I've been just doing the whole thing from home and, uh, you know, just me and my two routers. One is a cellular router in case the internet goes out. Uh, three different UPSs in, te- in case the power goes out. Basically, I have to support my livelihood. So I've created a studio inside my home that I think, barring a nuclear explosion, should be able to give me some kind of internet connection. So so Roy's joining us here from his homemade Faraday cage. We're- <laughs> So, of course, we're, we're familiar with uh, some of your work. I've got uh, at least one of your books on the, the bookshelf here, the, the Art of Unit Testing. 
Uh, but I know that you you mentioned uh, co-ops and pipeline-driven development and, and elastic leadership. Uh, you want to give us just a, a brief overview of of the the types of things that you're you're uh, interested in these days. There are three main pillars of things that I work on in the past few years. One is, of course, the unit testing and TDD, and I'm actually writing the third edition of The Art of Unit Testing. This time I'm actually rewriting it with JavaScript examples. Um, so I've um, uh, the idea is to gain a bigger audience. And also, I really wanted to learn JavaScript in the way that you can only learn when you actually have to teach other people. And I truly believe that the best way to learn is to teach. And so I'm struggling through that book, and I've been working on it for the past eight months, and I'm on the eighth chapter at this point. Um, even though it's a rewrite, it's actually taking longer than to write almost write the original one. And I've been learning a lot. Um, so that's one. The second area is... Um, basically continuous delivery and pipeline-driven organizations. Um, and that connects to not just test automation, but about pipelines, uh, how different groups communicate with each other. Uh, and it requires the third subject, which, which to me is called Elastic Leadership. And I'm, I wrote a book called Elastic Leadership. And that basically talks about the glue that we all need to be able to actually execute the vision that we have in our heads. Basically, the idea is that let's say that I'm a team leader and I believe in some good things that I want my team to do, but there is a difference between believing in something and actually getting your team to actually do that something. Uh, and so a lot of people get stuck, including myself, uh, trying to get teams to change their behavior. And part of uh, this, what this book talks about is basically how to, um, how to actually change behavior in teams, which is something that... I don't think anybody learns uh, so much in the industry, in the software industry, and we should. Basically, how people operate, how people are, uh, work. And it's not a psychology book, and it's not an agile book. The word agile doesn't actually appear in that stuff. It's actually more of the glue between. It's much more of a, um, uh, it's a team leadership book, really. But it talks about different situations where teams can be in survival mode versus learning mode versus self-organizing mode, and how to move between them why we can't get people to actually change their behavior. So there's a lot of stuff that I wish someone had taught me when I was starting to lead teams. Um, so again, it's based on a lot of mistakes. So there's these three areas together, unit testing and TDD, test automation, continuous delivery, and the elastic leadership, they are, they're all tied together. They're all working together. Because when I was teaching about unit testing and I was writing the book, I continuously got the same problem, which is people kept repeating the same questions for 10 years after the book was out, which means people were not actually making progress. I would return to the same organization that I was doing training and they would be in the same spot, even though everyone agreed with the stuff we were training. And that's where the elastic leadership idea came in, which is, well, what else can I do but to convince a person to do something? Uh, and even if they're convinced, nothing actually changes. So he talks about all these organizational issues and all that stuff. So I was just working things out for myself and writing a book about it, about all these mistakes that I was uh, doing. The pipeline-driven organization is really about um, connecting the other two subjects. How do you get an organization towards continuous delivery, which requires influence forces, leadership, also test automation and all these good things, but then gives you that extra level of uh, pipelines and constraints and theory of constraints, basically. I'm actually writing, that's the third book that I'm working on, um, which is um, pipeline-driven organizations. And I don't call it DevOps, and maybe we'll talk about that as well. I'll explain why. 
Yeah, so you were, you were mentioning elastic leadership. Um, this is a really interesting topic to me, but like you were talking about how um, it's difficult to get teams to change, difficult for people to change, even when they even agree with what you're saying. Can you go into a little bit more detail about what are some of the symptoms and signs there, and then you know how do you combat that? that? Well, um, well, a lot of people that are probably listening uh, are, are in the same situation, is that they, they are in a team and they've been trying to push for changes. Um, and specifically in the book, I talk about um, the idea that there is a difference between um, there, there are actually six types of influence forces. And again, I got that from a different book. And so imagine an amalgamation of multiple books and experiments that I've run. Um, so one of the books I've read, and then I incorporated that into the way that I do things is called how to change anything. Um, and I, I we can put a link to that, uh, later on. Uh, but in that book, they talk about six influence forces where, where people change their behavior based on those forces. So the first two are the, the, the first two are the ones that everyone tries, which is um, convincing a person that something is a good idea and teaching the person how to do that thing. For example, test-driven development. Um, if I go to a person in my team and I say, hey, do you want to do TDD? And they'll say, oh, I don't know if it's a good idea. And then I'll sit there for an hour and then explain how much of a good idea it is. And they'll say, okay, that sounds like a good idea teach me and then I'll teach them for two days or I'll, I'll give them a training course for four days. And then after that training course, and even if they're convinced, they'll go back to work and they won't do it because the other four influence forces are actually at work. And to me, that was a fascinating thing that really opened my eyes because the first pillar, the first two forces are in the category of what we would call the, 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 the local influence, which is the personal influence, the personal motivation and the personal ability to do something. But then we also have the two other categories, which is, um, um, the surroundings, which is the people around you, community, if you will, um, ability and community motivation, which is what do the people around you drive you towards? Uh, what is the social pressure to do? Which thing? Uh, if you're going to try to do test-driven development and everyone around you looks at you weird, how long can you keep it up? Um, uh, if uh, What do the people that you respect at your company, the people that you actually follow their advice, what do they believe in? Do they believe that TDD is a, is a bad idea? Very likely you won't be able to, you won't do it, even if you think it's a good idea. And then the third category is the environmental or the physical and um, uh, company environment. So the company environment means rewards and punishments or incentives uh, uh, that are towards or against the thing that you're trying to change. So let's say that you have, you're, you're measured by, uh, by uh, lines of code as an example, or by hours of work, or you're, uh, if you're, if you're measured by something that goes against the thing that you're trying to change, you will never be able to change that. I'll give you a simple example. If you try, I, I tried to get people to do pair programming. Um, what is the first question that I got, got asked is, well, but our estimates are based on hours. So when we do pair programming, our estimates will go crazy because the hours will not make any more sense. And then in the reports, management will tell us that something's wrong, that we're not spending enough hours on something, or that we spend too many hours on the same thing. Right. So that's an example of environmental influence, um, because that means that even if people believe in something and even if the, the people around them believe in that something, they will still not do it because 
they actually get paid not to do it or they, they have an incentive not to do it. Because at the end of the day, I have to feed my kids. I have three kids, right? Uh, I, I, I can be the biggest believer in the organization and TDD. But if my boss comes to me and says, well, why the hell are you writing that test? We have more important things to do. Um, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm not going to have a dilemma at all because there is a difference between feeding my kids and, and doing TDD. I can't go to them at the end of the year, you know, and we're all freezing in the house and we don't have any heating and we don't have any food. And I'll say, look, I know you're hungry and cold, but look at these beautiful tests that we wrote at the company, right? That's not going to work. And that's the difference. That to me is, an, that, that's the, the third category is environmental influence the rewards and punishment for doing a specific behavior. Imagine measuring code coverage. That's an example of an influence, right? You can get the wrong behavior from, for, for measuring code coverage. Um, and the last one in that category is physical environment. You want to do pair programming, but all your tables are like those, you know, those uh, half moon tables where there's only room for one person and their belly to sit in in the middle and everyone else can just kind of scoot over. They can't pair with other people. Or people physically unable to reach a specific meeting by a specific time. Um, so it doesn't really matter how much they want to do something. if The physical environment is preventing you from doing that something. Um, so these three categories together give you six possible checkpoints. And the n- interesting thing about this is that when we're trying to change something, I like to make my own little table about a specific behavior that I would like to change for a specific person, because it's always about a specific person. And then you can maybe extrapolate to multiple people. Um, you a lot of times you'll have more than a single influence that you're going to need to change, which means that you might have three or four and you have to change all of them before the behavior changes. It only takes one to break a behavior to basically keep it from changing, but you're going to have to solve all of them. If you have four of them working against you, you might have environmental influence and wrong incentives and the people around that person and their motivation is shot because of previous experience. And you have to figure out all these things and then you kind of have a map. So it's not an easy thing, but at least now there's the kind of like a checklist I can go to and I can say, okay, well, I'm stuck. I thought they were going to do this and they're not doing it. So at least now I'm not stuck. I can start asking different types of questions. The best sentence to take away from that is that for every behavior that you see, the world around that person is perfectly designed for that behavior to happen. Once you realize that, all you have to find out is kind of play Sherlock Holmes. Try to understand why or what influences exist for that person in that world. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, and you're you're saying, so as a leader, would you build these profiles per per, per person, or and you're or you're saying that you kind of usually like identify one individual and then try to find the commonalities that might expand out to the rest of the team. I usually try to understand the commonalities for uh, the, the the reasons for a single person. And then uh, if I need to, I'll extrapolate from that. But it has to come from a single person's behavior because um, for each person, the motivation could be completely different, the experience and the knowledge. So the, the, the personal aspect also is important. But then you can take the things that you learned and you can say, well, environmentally, that could also affect other people. So and then you can extrapolate and scale. And... I haven't come across a lot of situations where going to management and changing incentives was not required. In other words, almost always is there environmental influence and we have to talk to management to change a behavior in, 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 inside a team. For, 
if a team is focusing more on manual testing versus automated testing, you can talk to them until you're blue in the face about how important automated testing is. And they'll even agree with you and even say, absolutely. And then you'll come back to the team in a month and it won't change because most of the time, the reasons these things are happening, they're not at the team's control. It's how the team is measured. It's the amount of time allotted. It's the amount of expectations. It's the it's the way the team is looked upon. It's the a lot of times it's not under the control of the team. People want to do the right thing. Now, of course, sometimes people have different motivations and that's fine. But I'm saying that most of the time, there is at least one factor that happens in the environmental level, if not just at the community level. That's why uh, if we're trying to change behavior, it's a very powerful thing to create a community of practice inside the company for that thing. Because imagine that you're the person in your team that thinks that TDD is cool. Um, but you're the only one, but there, it's a big company. There are other teams, there are other people, uh, kind of like these, um, Don Quixote's, uh, working, trying to get the other teams and you meet once every couple of weeks just to bitch and moan about how difficult it is to get everyone to change that power of not being alone and realizing that the struggle is real for other people as well. That's a very powerful way to keep at it. Communities of practice make sure that behaviors actually stay in organizations because people support each other through the tough times because it is tough to change behavior, but at least you're not alone. So that strength in numbers comes from that type of influence. So that's the so that's one item in, in actually changing behavior. The second reason behaviors don't change, and you can again put them in the environmental stuff, is that I categorize teams to be in one of three different states usually. Survival mode, which is the team is fully overcommitted. They don't have time to actually learn anything. They're, you know, they're kind of chasing away fires and they're too late fixing things that they were late on. It's like crazy stuff. You cannot do anything. And I'm sure everyone here has been in that situation. Um, A team in survival mode cannot learn new practices. So moving the team away from survival mode and into learning mode where they have time to learn is where you want the team to be to even be able to coach them. And where do you coach them to is towards self-organization. That's the third state. And teams can move between these states sometimes on a weekly basis because the reality around them changes. Um, So one of the reasons that people don't change behaviors is because they're in survival mode. They don't have time to change behavior. They don't have time to learn TDD and whatever. You can throw as much money on sending them to trainings. But if you don't give them time to slowly practice and slowly make mistakes, there's a good book called Slack, which talks about how long it takes to learn something. And in that book, they talk about minimum five to ten times longer at the first few weeks or months just to learn something. I mean, just imagine, I have three kids. How long does it take to learn to tie your shoelaces, right? Do you just get it on the first try or the first ten? No. It takes you... Uh, 30 tries to get to, let's say, <laughs> two minutes. If, if you're a kid, imagine just learning all that stuff, right? How long, How many weeks does it take to actually be proficient so you can tie their shoes really fast? Um, that's, the, that's the example of what learning mode actually feels like. And that's where the coaching stuff happens. And I talk in the book about the fact that if I'm a team lead, I have to recognize which situation my team is in and change my leadership style to fit that situation, because in 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 uh, in learning mode, I'm going to be much more of a coach. But in survival mode, I'm I'm trying to get the shipwreck out of the water. Uh, so I'm going to be much more command and control for a while until I can become a coach. 
And in self-organizing mode, I'm going to be hands-off and more of a facilitator. So my leadership style actually changes because I cannot take a team that's in survival mode. They don't have the, the instincts or the experience to, to work all, on their own. And I can't just shut them off in a room and say, okay, you're agile now. You're self-organizing. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Because I'm going to open the door in a couple of weeks. And they're just going to be all dead on the floor. They won't be able to take care of themselves in the current reality of the organization. Everyone's going to tear them apart with this different request. They can't handle it. So I, I might protect them for a while. But my job is to make sure that I'm not necessary in the long run as, a, as, as like this protector. I have to grow them to that. And most teams need that type of coaching to become self-organizing. But you cannot treat them as, as one. And that's a big mistake that I see a lot of leaders make is that they, they treat teams as self-organizing when they're actually not. That's really interesting. I, what what about teams who are like they've been dealing with that survival mode uh, and they've been dealing with it so much that even when they've passed, they like they've they've gotten the fires out. Right. That they're so used to that mentality that they almost still live in that mentality, even if they have the time. Uh, is there a way to like help them engage that learning mode? That's a very powerful uh, thing that you that that you brought up because it is actually very common for a lot of teams to get used to that way of life of living in survival mode and fixing fires, and a lot of people make a very good living fixing fires for all of the all of their um, uh, career. Their career is fire fixer, right? They're the people getting up in the middle of the night to fix the thing that the only they can do. They become bottlenecks for the team. They're huge risk for the team. They're they're very centralizing in a way, uh, not not usually on purpose, but it just feels good because this is a situation that you've dealt with hundreds of times before. It's a fire. You know how to solve it. You know how to go into fire mode, but it's not scalable for the organization. It's a huge risk. So. Let's say that I have a person that wants to stay in a fire, right? Uh, I would then take the sixth influence chart and I'll try to get that person's behavior to change based and I try to understand what causes that person to specifically go and either resist a specific change or, you know, uh, actually hoard, let's say, information or anything like that. Because, again, it all starts from behaviors that you see in the real world. Let's say that a person um, um, doesn't actually share information about how the build works because they're used to fixing the build when it breaks, right? When you want them to share information, then you describe that behavior. You say, well, whenever uh, in a daily, whenever there's a question about the build, uh, the person says, uh, don't worry about it. I'll fix it, right? And I want the behavior to be, uh, I'll share my knowledge or something like that, right? That's the, That's where the discussion begins in my head. And then I'll go and I'll make this mental model of these six influence forces. And of course, I'll have to have a one-on-one with that person to understand. Because I want to even, sometimes even having the first conversation with a person feels like a bit of conflict. And a lot of people try to avoid conflict. So a lot of times if I'll ask a leader, did you have a one-on-one with that person on the thing that really bothers you about what they do? They'll say no. But I, I, I know why it's happening. And the answer is no, you don't. You can you, you imagine that you know you're giving yourself a story and your brain makes up stories so that you can avoid that conversation. Because it's if you've ever had a if you've ever avoided a conversation with someone because in your head you say, I know exactly what they're gonna say when I say X. Oh, they're gonna say Y and Z and all that stuff. I know exactly, I can guarantee you they're gonna say exactly these words, right? That's us trying to avoid a conversation. So to me, the, the biggest tip for a leader in that, in that situation is don't avoid a conversation. 
don't avoid a conflict. Um, you can you do, you don't have to do a screaming match. It can be relatively assertive that the conversation needs to happen, but you have to understand the motivation. If you explain why something is happening, how it hurts the team, how it hurts that person, you might get a good reason why that person is doing it, and you might understand that there could be a higher level influence in play. And then even if that person is trying to do the right thing, it is beyond their control, and the behavior might be in the environmental incentives, in other people that exist in the company, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to understand why it's happening for that person and then maybe extrapolate. Almost never is it about a specific person. That person could have a motivation of being really, really comfortable with something, but the organization also enables it. You have to remember, the organization enables everything that you see their environment is perfectly designed for that behavior to happen, which means in this organization, the organization is perfectly built for firefighting to happen, right? So it can't just be one person deciding that firefighting, unless that person is also like the VP R&D, the CTO, the, the chief architect, and all that stuff, because that means, yes, then they're, they're also encompassing all of the environmental incentives and all that stuff in their own decision-making. That's usually just in very small startups. But you take a, if you have five, six, 10 teams, 50 teams, that person is affecting so many people, it has to be enabled or at the very least overlooked, which is also a form of enabling. Um, and someone at some point is telling somebody else that they're doing a good job. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it, right? Because their livelihood is on the line as well. They, those people might have kids. They have a family to support, Right. They're probably getting paid to fight these fires, right? So someone is paying them to do that stuff. And there are so many different reasons these things could happen. It can only be that kind of uh, investigative surgery almost where you go and try to find these reasons. And to me, that's one of the most fascinating parts of working as a consultant is you get to experience that in multiple different companies. And sometimes it's so different, and sometimes it's almost the same. It's eerily the same in so many different <laughs> companies, the patterns. Uh, and that, to me, is like, um, it's just uh, just so interesting, just just fascinating to, to, to try to understand humans better. So, so as, a, as a consultant, you're probably often brought in to, to be a change, to make a change. To help with change, or yeah, sometimes I'm brought in so that they can blame someone. Uh, and then not change. That's also true. And sometimes it's a political practice. Sometimes I'm brought in by uh, people at the technical level. Sometimes I'm brought in by management. Um, but it's usually when there's a transformation that is either undergoing and has failed or that's about to be embarked or they need help even just jumpstarting uh, some sort of a transformation. Um, and it could be very small, like, oh, we just need better tests. Or it could be as big as we are. Uh, we just started this whole new department. We're moving from outside vendors to internal. Help us build um, um, the teams the way that they should be working. Help us build the infrastructure the way it should work. Not not me build it, but like what is what is the template for building that stuff for this type of software? Right. What do the pipelines need to do? How do the teams uh, uh, cooperate between themselves? Should they work as feature teams? Should they work as, um, you know, a teams per uh, technology? What should we do? There, there's so many ways. It's like Lego. There's so many ways to accomplish a lot of things. But we want to do continuous delivery. Uh, and if we've been trying and somehow we have a release every four, three months. We don't know why. <laughs> 
So, but if you were, if you were like, um, if you were just a normal employee, just a, an associate that got hired, uh, but you, you felt like you had good ideas for, let's say fire prevention and you wanted to help your team stop doing the firefighting and get more into the fire prevention, but they're too busy firefighting. Do you take up the mantle as a firefighter while you try to figure out how to do the fire prevention or do you stand firm and and really stick to your guns on fire prevention. Like, how do you, I guess, how do you, how do you convince a team that doesn't realize that they have a problem, that they have a problem? And in the meantime, do you adopt the team practices, even though they're 180 degrees from what you believe is the right thing to do? Well, maybe this is why it's called a six-figure developer, right? Because maybe what is the differentiation of a six-figure developer than a five-figure developer? Um, I think it's proactiveness. So I'll give you an example from a company I was hired in, not not as a consultant, but as an internal employee. And I was not hired as a team lead, but as a senior developer in that company, a very large company. Um, the company that does both software and hardware, a company that has more than 2,000 developers. And I was hired in just one of the teams in all these big groups um, to help with because I had a good knowledge of unit testing and stuff like that, so I was com- coming in to help uh, and being a senior developer in one of the teams. And from day one, the thing that I wanted to understand, and I think this applies to anyone joining a new job, try to understand the context in which you're doing things. In in other words, keep asking why, and it could be very annoying, but because new people in a company are much more allowed. They have permission to ask why much more than people that already have been in that job for two or three years. You get, uh, let's say, 100 days of grace. Use them very, very well. And the way to use them is to create a mental model of the, of the delivery process of the company that you work in. So, for example, if I'm just joining a team and I'm witnessing all these practices, some of them I hate and some of them I like. Uh, but I noticed some things that are really bothering me, like, uh, oh, we have all these tests, but they're not actually running in the build. And in fact, I noticed that the build is actually running only once a month, like the, 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 the integration build. Uh, but I don't have control over that because there's a build team and the build team. They're in a, like the other side of the building and it's a big building. Um, so I'm in this big company and I'm just sitting in this team. So can I start asking why? Uh, how come we don't have a bill? Well, uh, we don't actually know. Okay, who can I talk to to ask? So in your lunch break, you go and you talk to that person. Hey, I'm new here. I just want to understand how things work. Can you explain to me how the builds work? And uh, I noticed that they're only running like once a month. And and you start getting sometimes a lot of friendly answers. People want to be helpful, right? Sometimes you're going to come across an asshole. Fine. But in the big companies, there's also non-assholes. Find a non-asshole to explain. Um, and then what you want to do is you want to understand the cycles. The, the, in some companies, you'll actually have a process mapped out. You'll have like a JIRA page with a diagram that explains the process. If you have that, first of all, of course, it could be wrong because maybe someone wrote it five years ago. But definitely look at it because it represents what the company was trying to achieve. You have to get the context. So many developers are joining companies. And they have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. Um, so do we have sprints? Okay. Um, 
when uh, what other meetings other than sprints exist oh the product and the scrum master are talking oh can i join one of those meetings is it possible can i look at the recording of that meeting if it's happening on zoom so act like a sponge not just about your local work because your local work that's the actually the easiest part you have a bunch of code you set up your dev environment whatever it is you need to do fine that's under your control now after that week after you got your machine working and you actually have permission to go into uh, you know, uh, the, the restaurant and the company, then you actually zoom out and you say, okay, uh, who do we interact with? Which teams do we depend on? Which teams depend on us? What part of the product are we on? Are we working on? It's a big product. When does that product get built? Uh, when do our tests that we wrote run? Uh, what pipelines actually run? How do we get to deployment? What is deployment for us? When does it run? Who gets to decide what is deployment? How many branches do we have? Who gets to decide the merges between the branches? Why? Can I talk to that person? Can I talk to the architect? Can I understand why all those things? Because I guarantee you, there was a good reason for it, right? For every behavior that you see, there's a good reason why it happens. So it's not about saying it's a bad idea, but it's about understanding. Because you have to reach a point where you will say, okay, I understand why they did that. And now maybe I can even talk about why I want to change it. But the worst thing you can do is to come to a place that you don't understand and try to give advice because people will laugh at you sometimes to even to your face, depending on the country. I'll say, who the hell is this clown coming in? Uh, and they might in their head, they might be thinking I've been for past five years. I've been fighting for the things that this clown has been telling me. Why don't you just do unit testing and automated testing? Come on. Can't we all just be friends and get along? But uh, people have been probably fighting some of those fights internally in hideaways, secretly, with politics for years, and we have no idea. We're just coming in with our kind of naive self, just just saying, oh, you should just do this, or you should just do that. People are going to be turned off, and you're not going to have any friends for a while. We do not want to be in that situation. So be political. Learn to be political. Save your views for yourself for the first six months. And only when you're absolutely sure that you understand why, you can start suggesting things. For example, in one of the companies, in that company, I went to the build after I understood. And I said, could we do the build every night? And they said, ah, never going to happen. I said, why? Well, um, because the developers uh, uh, won't actually look at the build. I said, okay, interesting. Let me go to developers and ask because I'm a developer. Let me ask. Would they actually care if the build was running every night? Sure, we would care. Um, well, I promise the developers will care if you run it. So should we give it an experiment? Fine. Okay. Uh, can we also run the test every night? Ah, uh, we can't. Why? Because they're not, they're all failing. Well, nobody's fixing them. Of course, nobody's fixing them because nobody's running the tests. Oh, interesting chicken and egg situation there, right? So you go in with the developers and you fix the test and you say, okay, the tests are green. Can we please run them every night? Fine. It's your funeral. Let's run them every night. And suddenly... The build is running every night with tests. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a technical problem. It was a completely organizational, um, situational problem. So those types of things, you have to come at it from the idea that people want to do the right thing. And often when you ask people to do the right thing, they'll say, I wish I could, but, and then they'll give you a reason, something to give you to actually work on. Uh, but you actually have to understand the organization first and understand who you're talking to and why they're doing what they're doing. And realize that in this situation, if you were them, if you had their experience and their boss and their managers and all that stuff, you would have done the exact same thing. So what needs to change for that to actually happen? And that's an example of being proactive. So 
in that company, I started as a senior developer as a senior developer, but I moved up the ranks very, very quickly up to a, a, a director level. <laughs> okay. Nice. Because I was the guy who helped make the build run every night. And they've been trying to do that for three years. And nobody understood why it's not happening. Management, now it wasn't a complicated situation. It took me six months to get there, right? Because I had to actually understand the situation. But from the moment I decided to start pushing for it until it actually happened was less than three weeks. Because it wasn't a complicated thing. It wasn't technically problematic. It's about understanding the relationships in the organization. What's triggering what? Who's triggering who? What's the reasoning for something? Um, so that's an example of, to me, uh, what is an example of a proactive developer? You don't have to do it at 12 at midnight. You can do it at working hours. You don't have to do anything other than just be uh, inquisitive, asking, understanding context. And it's amazing how many people don't understand, and they've been working for years, why they're doing what they're doing. Why do, does it happen now? What meetings happened before? What happens to my code after I merge to the master branch or not even the master branch? People who understand that context have much more power in the organization to actually change those things. So if you want to change something, understand the context in which you're working. This has been excellent. Um, so we've we've discussed your or we've mentioned at least your your books, the uh, art of unit testing, uh, elastic leadership, and your upcoming one, pipeline driven organizations. Are, are there any other resources, yours or otherwise, that you could point our listeners to who are looking to sort of help their teams and lead in leadership and move their their teams forward themselves in unit testing um, and you know this continuous delivery. Um, there is the Continuous Delivery Bible, which is the book called Continuous Delivery. So with Jez Humble is one of the authors. So I highly recommend that book. Um, there's uh, the, pre the, the prequel of that is Continuous Integration. It's also very good. Uh, I would also recommend looking at a book called Agile Estimating and Planning by Mike Cohn. Because a lot of people that come in, especially as team leads, they have no clue how to actually run a team in terms of not ceremonies, but how to actually do estimation. What is it, the difference between story points and complexity? Uh, how do you actually show, wh what type of metrics could you probably use? How do you track a release progress? How to put buffers uh, for safety when you're actually planning a, a complicated project? Uh, there are a lot of things, and this is not a new book. There's a lot of knowledge out there um, and it's hard to sift through all of it. So I would definitely recommend that as one of the books. If you're starting out um, and you're going to lead a team or you're going to be a scrum master in a team or anything like that, definitely get that book because it gives a lot of things that people have to learn the hard way so many times, including myself. Um, so when I actually approached that book, a lot of things made sense, but it still added so many new things that I hadn't thought of. Even different, just different types of charts that are much more manageable that managers will understand better. And I would say that one of the, I guess the biggest tip that you would want to have is that you have to understand people as much as you understand computers. You cannot just get away with just understanding computers anymore. That's not the way the world works. That's not the way that we want people to work. We are definitely much more communication-based that we would want to believe. Um, and that means that if you don't do it, you become kind of a bottleneck in the team and a risk. Um, and, and, and for every person that is a great developer but a bad communicator will be able to find 
a person that's a great developer and a good communicator. And that person is going to get hired over the other person. That's just the way it works. Just like the asshole rule, right? For every person that's a great developer is an asshole, I'll find a great developer that's not an asshole. And I don't have a problem with that rule. So that's an example. Also, <laughs> it's not a book, but <laughs> it's just a rule that that you'll, you'll have to remember. Um, there are also a lot of great books by Jerry Weinberg and Johanna Rothman that I highly recommend. Uh, Jerry Weinberger, Reinberg, uh, wrote a book called um, Leading Teams Congruently, uh, which I, I highly recommend. It's an old book, but it's a very good one. And it, that brings you down the rabbit hole. If you search for that book, also a lot of books by Johanna Rothman for managing the project portfolio. If you're running multiple projects, you're a bit higher up. If you're a director, I think that's a very good book to uh, to look at as well. All right. Um so I, I love that Mike Cohen book as well. Um, although I will uh, give out some free advice to anybody else who reads it, it does not make a good gift to a BA or uh, <laughs> Scrum Master. They they will not uh, graciously accept it. Uh, they don't like that. Um, I, I I gave one to somebody. Uh, they didn't appreciate it. Um, <laughs> well, at least you didn't get them like the estimating for dummies book, right? <laughs> Um, I, I believe it became a monitor stand, right? Isn't that where that one went? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, um, it did. So, <laughs> but anyway, I feel like <laughs> I feel like this whole episode has kind of been an answer to my next question. But uh, maybe you have a little bit more. Um, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? Yeah, the proactiveness part. Um, I, I I want to differentiate between being proactive and being passionate. Um, because I don't think you actually have to be passionate and you don't have to be like the, not everybody has to be a 10 X developer to make a good living. I think Scott Hanselman put it really nicely. Uh, not everyone has to be there just because they have to have seven different pet projects on GitHub and all that stuff. It's, it's perfectly fine to want to make a living, a good living, uh, working in software and just doing a nine to five. But in that nine to five, you do your best work. You don't have to go to conferences. You don't have to speak at conferences. You don't have to write books. But you have to be proactive, which means that you have to understand your surroundings. You have to push for change that you think is a good idea. And if you don't want to push for change, at least be responsible for the areas that you're really good at. Just realize that there is a difference between uh, just being somewhere and pushing up. And pushing up, or basically the way to get noticed, is um, by actually making a difference. Uh, by doing something that people thought is not possible. Uh, no, I'm not talking about um, um, fixing something at, at 2 in the morning. I'm talking about people stuff. I'm talking about understanding context. I'm talking about suggesting things. Um, I'll give you an example. One of the companies that I'm consulting for these days is a huge company, um, very successful one. And... And and I'm joining a lot of different daily meetings across different teams. It doesn't take a lot to get noticed if there's a developer that asks or raises a red flag. Raising a red flag is also very important. Uh, we have a problem, something is stuck, and I would really love a help about it. You know, from uh, if I'm joining uh, six different daily meetings, uh, and in two of them, a developer, a different developer, of course, because it's different teams, speaks up and says something. Who am I going to remember on uh, the second time that happens? The third time when someone actually is more proactive. Th that doesn't take a lot to be proactive. 
because by default, most people are not. So being proactive, it means that saying something when other people don't means asking something when other people don't. Uh, to me, that makes a difference because that you would want that. Uh, that's what I would say most people expect from developers that are good is that they um, they don't shortchange themselves. And when they promise something, they they promise to do good work about it. And they're proactive in saying if something is not going to happen, they ask a question, they say they don't know. Um, it does. It's not a. It's not a. Um, it doesn't have to be a lot more than that, especially if you're in a big company. The the, the lines of um, like the default lines are very much easy to to break, like the glass ceiling over the default lines. It, you just need to ask more questions. <laughs> I guess I'm going kind of repeating myself. Oh, I'll say then the, the second thing. Um, Learn to be a good communicator. Learn to be able to explain something. And that means learn how to teach people. Be comfortable pairing with other people. And if you're not comfortable with it, do it until you are comfortable. Be comfortable teaching other people. Be comfortable speaking, not public in conferences, but at least explaining something either over a whiteboard or over Zoom. Uh, Make it a target for yourself to be able to explain something in a way that... um, that is understandable to someone who's never heard the subject. Um, that requires you to learn something in a very deep way. Um, communication, I would say, is the is is another elevation um, because people that are good communicators are by default much more connected to leadership because they're able to explain and they're, they're going to be the ones that people are going to ask because they explain something the best way. If you're going to raise a red flag and you want it taken care of, you have to be able to explain it in a way that people can understand. Uh, my wife tells me always that uh, I'm really good at saying the same thing in five different ways. I highly recommend that you learn how to say the same thing in five different ways. Just just get used to it. Um it sometimes is <laughs> a bit uh, challenging for other people, but in the workplace, I would say it's one of the most useful things. Architects, good architects is an example, have to be great communicators. The worst architects I've seen are bad because of two things. They don't have time to spend with you, and when they do, they don't explain themselves well. So they can't explain the architecture. They can't convey the message. They can't explain the context. Um the same goes for leaders. The same goes for any, basically anyone that has to communicate with anyone. And today, that's everybody. So communication and being proactive, asking questions, raising red flags. Um, after that, everything is just cherries on top, I would say. That, like, that already brings you to the 10th percentile, 10th, 10% of the top. 90% of people won't even do those things. Very cool. Um, where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? So my website is osherov.com. That's O-S-H-E-R-O-V-E.com. Or on Twitter, that's Roy Osherov on Twitter. Um, from there, there's a, you know, a bunch of links like artofunittesting.com and elasticleadership.com. I'm really good at buying domains. <laughs> <laughs> and pipeline-driven.org, like there's a bunch of stuff. Uh, five Ys, like f- the number five, W-H-Y-S dot com, where I have a blog about the elastic leadership stuff. So I highly, uh, I would recommend people to go there. There's a lot of stuff that I wrote there when I was fighting with a lot of things myself as well. Um, that's where that book was kind of born from that blog. 
Excellent. Well, Roy, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much, guys. And uh, I think it's great that you're kind of, I think that the world needs a podcast for people that are, you know, trying to get ahead in this industry. So good job. I, I really like the, uh, the ideas behind this. Thanks so much. That was Roy Oshroff. Roy has worked in the, in, in the software industry for over 20 years and has authored several books, including The Art of Unit Testing. These days, he's working as a freelance consultant and trainer on site for various companies across the world. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at SixFigureDev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. 